0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 125 Deep Space Healthcare. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today, that includes doctors, because this is the next part in our series about how NASA is preparing to safely send human beings on future missions to space, from missions to the International Space Station, to the Moon, and eventually to Mars. NASA's Human Research Program is working to learn how the human body is affected by being in the spaceflight environment so we can figure out how to keep the bad things from happening and be prepared to fight back against those effects if and when they do happen. The HRP has divided that work up into five elements, and we're learning about them in our current series of podcasts that started with episode 123, Humans in Space. Today, we focus on developing the plans to take care of those future astronauts. As HRP says on its own website, identifying and testing next generation medical care and crew health maintenance technologies. We have two guests. Nancy Fleming is Element Manager for Exploration Medical Capability, which you'll hear us refer to as XMC. She began her career at NASA as an avionics and systems instructor for International Space Station and Space Shuttle astronauts and for flight control team members. She's worked in program management and in mission operations. And Dr. Chris Lanehart is the XMC Element Scientist. Lanehart is board certified in emergency medicine in the United States and Canada. You'll find out why. Uh, He also works in clinical shifts in the emergency department at Houston's Ben Taub Hospital. That's a top trauma center in our city. He has appointments as a senior faculty with the Baylor College of Medicine in the Center for Space Medicine and in their department of emergency medicine. So here's part three of six on NASA's human research program exploration medical capability here we go e minus 5 seconds and county mark you know you know the advanced life support correct here she goes isn't we have a podcast If you ask any astronaut or engineer or scientist or flight controller around NASA, they will all agree that space flight is hard. And you add humans to the mix and it makes it even harder. For example, we put any numbers of robots on Mars. They've got scientific instruments and cameras, transmitting devices so we here on Earth can see what they're doing. But so far, zero people. When you add people to the equation, it becomes very much more complicated because protecting people from the environment outside the protection of Earth's atmosphere is really hard. It's much harder than fortifying the robots for work in outer space. NASA has been working on this human problem since the very beginning of human spaceflight. The Human Research Program coordinates a wide range of studies and experiments and projects. They group it into five elements, including one called Exploration Medical Capability. If you've been listening to the podcast, you're hearing about all of the others in great detail, too. But for today, Nancy Fleming, the Element Manager for Exploration Medical Capability, I'll start by asking you so that we're properly focused here. um, What is the work of your Element XMC? XMC
1: Um, Thanks. I'm happy to be here and happy to tell you about um, the work of XMC. I'm here with our element scientist, Dr. Chris Leinhart. And the work of our element, we we work hand in hand together um, to solve the problems associated with um, long duration spaceflight to Mars and how we will address um, if an astronaut gets injured or sick during that time frame and the best way to address that.
0: What does an element manager at this element do? Oh,
1: well, as an element manager, um, I'm part of the leadership team. Um, I work in concert with um, Dr. Hart and together we we set the technical direction uh, of the work of the element. And as a manager, I manage the resources. I make sure that we get um the people that we need to do the work the scientists the engineers the physicians the clinicians in order to accomplish that work I manage the budgets we do a lot of communication together we together steer the ship of the um, work and ensure that the taxpayers are getting the best bang for their buck
0: how, what was your career that led you to to this because I think you've been at NASA for some time in other kinds of jobs, right?
1: I have. Um, my career to NASA uh, is kind of circuitous. It, it's not kind Who, of circuitous. It? Yeah. It's really circuitous. And um, when I was young, um, my dad was an electronics technician. And um, I had this propensity for solving problems, and he recognized that in me. And when I was in sixth grade, so I think that's, you're about 12 in sixth grade, um, my dad sat me down one afternoon, because I was kind of a curious kid, yeah. too, and he taught me what hexadecimal was.
0: <laughs> Why were you being punished?
1: <laughs> I, I thought, I found it absolutely fascinating. Really? What I okay. was excited about was I had no idea that math and numbers could be manipulated in a creative way that could then be used to solve complex problems and thus started my curiosity down that path and wanting to learn more about math and I think when I was about 14 I decided I wanted to be a mathematician when I grew
0: up oh nice
1: and um, as life takes different routes um, it did for me but eventually I got back to college and I became a mathematician and um, that gave me What was exciting about that is, is, um, again, solving problems in a creative way and using a variety of techniques, mathematical techniques, and things that um, you don't really normally think of because they're happening behind the scenes in machines. And that gave me a step, a a foot in the door to um, be introduced to the work that NASA is doing. So I moved to Clear Lake. And uh, as you know, Johnson Space Center is in Clear Lake in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a professor who was um, solving problems here for NASA. And he said, hey, do you want to solve some problems with me? And I said, absolutely. (laughs) Let me go do that. And uh, while I did that, I met folks at NASA. And uh, then I was um, hired in. um, And my first job here at NASA 20 years ago was uh, training the first International Space Station crews nice so the very first crews um, for the ISS um, I trained them on the computer systems and the um, Environmental control and life support systems and the communication systems Nice. Uh, 20 years later. Um, I am now a manager um, that uh, uh, Works with uh, an amazing team of very talented and gifted um, scientists, physicians, engineers that are working to solve problems in creative ways.
0: I remember doing an interview with Bill Shepard, who was the Expedition 1 commander, who was fascinated by the fact that unlike other spaceships or ships that he'd been on before, the International Space Station all was on computers. He, he was telling me, there isn't a light switch to turn things on, on and off, it's all on the computers. and you. Or I trained te- him on those computers. On the computers.
1: Absolutely, mm-hmm. um, nice. we. I spent a lot of quality time with Shep.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Lanehart. What does an element scientist do for XMC? The, the job
2: of the element scientist is, uh, as Nancy said, to be part of a team, a leadership team that. I try to describe to people we're sort of the conductors of the orchestra if you will so if the if the orchestra are all of our clinicians and physicians and scientists and engineers who are helping to design medical systems to go to mars we provide them with guidance and direction for what they're going to do and a lot of our work a lot of my work is focused on really trying to dig deep into the problem of providing medical care for space exploration and developing concepts or solutions for that problem. And then our team goes off and actually develops and builds those solutions.
0: As Nancy mentioned, you're a doctor, but give me the thumbnail of your background.
2: So mine is uh, equally circuitous uh, <laughs> to Nancy's. I started you guys are that a,
0: competitive that you're arguing about who took <laughs> the longest route to get you here. You will
1: find <laughs> that we are very much a team. Uh-huh. We are very much a we're, and we have other people that are part of our team as well, our leadership team.
0: You go ahead, Chris.
2: So if my accent hasn't given me away yet, I'm originally from Canada and I grew up as a space nerd, but I also had a, an intense love of biology. it was in high school that someone encouraged me to think about going into medicine. And I saw that there were astronauts who had been physicians previously. And in fact, there was a Canadian astronaut who was an emergency physician. Dave Williams. Dave Williams, exactly right. Uh, And so I said, well, maybe I'll go be an emergency physician and then I can be involved in in space. And so that was my initial path. Uh, And what I learned as I was doing that was that there was this entire field in medicine called aerospace medicine that I knew nothing about. But what it was, essentially, was the, the study of medicine in extreme environments. And there's no more extreme environment than space. But there's a lot to learn from all these other environments as well. So I studied about wilderness medicine and diving medicine and flight medicine and space medicine. And all of that was focused on how do you provide medical care to people in these terribly difficult places where they don't have any of the stuff that they would otherwise want to have with them. And that that path is what brought me to
0: NASA. You went to some of those extreme environments on your own.
2: I, you? I yeah. do enjoy <laughs> uh, taking some smart risks, if you will. Uh, so I... I learned to fly planes, Um, I'm a reservist in the military in Canada in the Royal Canadian Air Force um, as a medical specialist, and I learned to be a scuba diver as well. And so what I realized as I was training and learning about how to provide medical care in these environments is that I had to actually understand the environments. Uh, And these environments, like space flight are what we refer to as, as operational environments. And so if you don't understand the challenges of being in those places, it's very hard to think about the problems of providing care in those. As a doctor, most doctors think about hospitals and large teams of people and lots of equipment. Right. And these environments preclude
0: all of that. There's something you said there a moment ago that, that struck me, you're, you're talking about how to provide care to people who are in these environments, but not necessarily because that environment impacted them, but it sounds like because they're in a hard place for you, the physician, to get to.
2: Yes, to both. Uh, The the environment itself, frankly, is trying to kill you. (laughs) Um, So that is part of the problem. Uh, Another part of the problem is that even the healthiest and most fit people in these extreme environments were all still human and the human system inevitably breaks down. Like your car, various components break down over time. Uh, so So treating the human system in that environment is challenging, but changing the mindset of the physician or the clinician who's providing care to people in these environments is essential as well because If they are reliant upon their equipment and their facilities and their ability to consult with other people
0: once you take all of that away can they still do their job what can they do in getting ready to to talk with you today what seemed to to filter out to me as I was thinking about it uh, was that what you're Trying to develop now for future space flight is the is the the hospital or the clinic or the sick bay capability for uh, taking care of crews on future missions who are farther away, much farther away even than they are on the International Space Station right now. Is that is that a, a good analogy or, or a valid one?
1: The sick bay is a great analogy. Um, as you know, um, if you're a Star Trek fan, there's a sick bay in Star Trek. Um, and as you also know, if you're uh, a space fan at all, you know that spacecraft are incredibly small. And so the problem to solve about creating a sick bay for a spacecraft is, is how do you get all the things that you need in that to be small and efficient? And we are working towards that.
0: Yeah, You don't have unlimited, you don't have a warehouse
1: we don't have a warehouse no and things need to be integrated and they need to be multifunctional Okay, that they have the ability to be used for the highest probability of illness or injury that we're anticipating
0: I, and i wanted to I, I, to touch on this later but i, I think what what we we want to realize and i and i learned this only just recently is that as you're trying to put this all together you don't have unlimited resources and you, you can't supply Everything that might possibly be needed, because that spaceship is small and there's no room for it.
1: That is very correct. Yeah.
0: And the fact is, in in the cases of going to the moon or going to Mars, they're going so far away that we you can't even send it to them.
1: That is true. You can't send things, and you can't um, you have no resupply, which is sending um, supplies up, and you can't send things back for analysis <laughs> or. Um, or uh, care right Right. not in a timely fashion so the the way that um we work um for with the iss right now and even for the moon because they are so much closer to the earth than uh, heading to mars and mars is um, we have those luxuries of return and supply and uh, constant communication and as you get further from the earth when you're headed out towards mars um, you lose those luxuries.
0: Mm-hmm. And as you're working with some of those concepts in mind, you're also working with the other people in the human research program who are working on other uh, focused areas. Uh, give me a sense of how your element works in coordination with the others to, to, to tackle this whole big problem of taking care of human bodies outside this safety umbrella.
2: We have to work really closely with the other elements <clears throat> of the human research program, because as you just said, our resources that we're going to have for these missions are extremely limited. And what we're going to have to do is we're gonna to have to make tough decisions about what we can actually take with us. And so as a result, if we each, if each group does their own individual research and comes up with their own solution, but we don't look at how that, all those different solutions combine together, into an integrated system, then we're gonna end up with a bunch of disparate stuff. Mm. And the ultimate goal of the human research program is to help NASA to provide a crew that is both physically and mentally fit to accomplish the mission. And the way that we do that is by developing a crew health and performance system for Mars that integrates all of the work of HRP to make sure that we can keep them safe and healthy while
0: we do the mission. It has struck me in in talking and hearing some of your colleagues talk too, that overall HRP is looking at finding ways to keep people well and safe in this environment. And your element is looking at how to take care of them when they get sick or injured anyway.
1: That is true. Um we always like to tell folks, we're the the tail end of the dog. <laughs> um we like uh, prevention is the best cure, but we're also realists and we know that uh people aren't healthy 100% of the time regardless mm-hmm. of um their of how well you take care of yourself, he, even here on earth, you you may be the epitome of um uh, taking care of yourself in all of the right ways but eventually your body is a machine and it's going to break down at some point point. and we know that that will be the case in space and so mm-hmm. we must plan for those contingencies
0: let me get you to help educate us a bit about space medicine or and taking care of people in space I have heard and and in the past year while we've been hearing Uh, about anniversaries of apollo missions there have been references to things that are even older than that and back in before mercury flew it's like doctors were concerned that they sent people to space they weren't going to even be able to swallow because of because of the lack of gravity or such give me a sense of of how space medicine has, has evolved from those days through mercury up to to where we are right now and and the ways that we are now able to care for people that we send to space the space medicine in
2: the beginning as as you described was really about how does the human body even work in space and if it does work in space can we try and anticipate what types of events are going to occur and then treat them and so from the beginning of space medicine that's what people have been studying when we started out with mercury They had a very small kit of stuff that they took with them. In fact, I think it fit in a pouch or a pocket on their leg. Yeah. And it was like the kind of thing you would take if you were going hiking for a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was really about managing immediate problems and taking these very healthy people uh, and giving them some very simple solutions for if they had any ailments that would impact the mission.
0: And, And on a very short mission. They, they weren't expected to, to be gone for very long. Yes, absolutely. The, the short
2: mission duration for all of Mercury, Gemini and Apollo uh, meant that the medical kit was relatively small um, and didn't have a lot of capability. As we evolved from there to the space shuttle and then to the ISS, we've started developing more robust capabilities for taking care of people. So for example, on ISS right now, there's an ultrasound machine Uh, that allows us to diagnose medical problems in space flight. That ultrasound machine in the future, our vision of medical care when we go to Mars and the transition from current day ISS operations to the future is this integrated system where we have all of these amazing capabilities, laboratory analysis for blood and urine, uh, imaging analysis for ultrasound, uh, all of the medications we're going to need, all of the equipment we're going to need, we're going to have that all as a as an integrated system, uh, and we're going to try and move past the the days of the medical kit, the kind of thing that you take when you go hiking or you go on a camping trip, to something that's going to be taking care of people for years at a time.
0: The Swiss Army knife of, of medical care.
2: That'd be a nice. It'd be nice to have one of those. Yeah. I'm sure that we would find some uses <laughs> for that. Uh, but it would it would be very important for us to know how that piece of equipment works with all of the other equipment as well.
0: As we said in in early days of human spaceflight, people were not gone for very long and they weren't leaving their spacecraft. And I, I think that realistically, the chances that they become injured were probably pretty small, but doctors were concerned that they didn't know how the people were gonna be able to even function in that environment, right?
1: That's what 50 years have, have brought to us. Um, the human bodies in space has been studied um, over that time, and we've learned a lot. In fact, over just the last 20 years, with um, continuous uh, presence in the ISS, you've had people in space for 20 years, and we've been collecting data on those bodies mm-hmm. for 20 years. And we are using that data um, in, in ways to inform how we design the next system
0: you doctors and engineers love you data i know (laughs) scientists too but but you've been keeping track of all 200 and i think it's 39 right now different human beings who have been on board the international space station in 19 plus years i i take it that's been useful (laughs) we are putting that data
2: to very good use. Uh, That information is going to help us to try and predict the kind of medical events that are going to occur on the way to Mars. And it's through that prediction, we do a risk analysis, and we essentially come up with lists of conditions and the most likely conditions. And that helps us to scope a medical system. We would love to take a hospital emergency room on the way to Mars, mm-hmm. but that is simply not feasible. And so what we have to do is we have to use the data to help us to make evidence-based decisions for what we are going to take to go to Mars. Because the worst case scenario is that you take stuff that you don't end up using, because that means that that stuff took up space that could have been used for something else.
0: The else That was needed.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so the at the end of the day, this is actually a, believe it or not, this is an economics problem, which is called the backpack problem. Okay. And it's based all upon maximizing benefit and minimizing risk or cost. And so- Which sounds how can thoroughly we, reasonable. Right, yeah. how can we get <laughs> the best stuff that takes up the least amount of space that gives you the most bang for your buck?
0: On the On the studying the astronauts on the space station, you're familiar with the data and I'm not. Can you give me some sense of of things that you've learned after 19 plus years of people in space? What do we know now that we didn't know then?
1: Well, something that we know now, but we kind of knew before then was the human body is really just a bag of water with some bones in it. and that becomes more apparent when you're in space.
0: Yeah. In <laughs> um, what's in whoop, in this in what sense?
1: And and what that means is is in space while on the ground, everything your body how your body works is used to the gravity pulling it down towards your feet. And so all of your fluid functions get pulled towards your feet and your body knows how to counteract that with gravity when you're in a Zero gravity environment, it all equalizes out. No different than when you're diving. You know how you equalize, or you get into a body a neutral position. That's what happens to your body in space. It becomes a, a sack of water, mm-hmm. and all of those fluids just float. They don't. They aren't pulled anywhere. And so your systems have to work differently to push and pull them. You get more fluid in your head. Um, um and you're not used to that fluid in your head on the ground because it all goes towards your feet and so that fluid in your head um, can have different effects on on your vision or depending on how that is um, it could have an effect on the way that you're thinking about problem solving
0: it it affects your your thought processes too is that what you're
2: saying so the spaceflight environment the, the lack of gravity, the radiation associated with it, the isolation and confinement on the space station, all of that affects the performance of the people on board and has the ability to, per- to affect their thinking as well. And so when we talk about health, we often talk about medicine, but in this case, the health and performance of the crew is, as equally, is equally important.
0: If you take what you've learned from this data, studying these astronauts all over this time. Have you had an opportunity, or not you personally, but, but NASA had the opportunity then to try to use these astronauts on the space station as uh, to test out ways to counteract those things? The space station is the perfect environment that we have,
2: the best available environment that we have right now to study how humans are gonna explore the rest of space
0: and and I, I make i'm going to stop you there but first how do we compare the the microgravity environment on the space station to the environment that crews on the way to mars would would experience are, are they very comparable or, or very different from one another
2: they are more similar than they are different okay uh, and so the spaceflight environment
0: this, on the station, on even the station, better for station studying.
2: is a great analog for studying what we need to learn to go to mars absolutely right so the the microgravity that you experience on the space station is essentially identical to the microgravity that you're going to experience on the way to mars the we have no way of simulating that for a for an extended period of time on the ground so we need the space station in order to study microgravity deep space has a different radiation environment than the space station does okay so there are some elements of deep space on the way to mars where the radiation is going to be substantially different but the iss is still exposed to that same space radiation just in different ways and is still a better place to study that than we can do on the ground we have the ability to create or mimic space radiation on the ground
0: but nothing beats the real thing mm-hmm. and so using the space station uh is we were saying is a, is a way to test ideas or theories about how we are going to take care of those future astronauts and and some of those things have have worked out tell, tell me about some of those those uh, those ideas that have been tested
1: so in exploration medical capability we do a lot of technology um demonstrations on the space station we do medical technology demonstrations. We want to try to find out if, how fluids work in space, if we can put an IV in in space. Mm-hmm. Um, we will, we will need to find out if we can do how, how we can um, analyze blood uh, in space. We've done analysis on um, – we have done technology demonstrations on, um, on uh, imaging – uh, different type of imaging equipment, and uh, if they can be extended to um, be used for more different, different types of things. Do you want to tell them about IVGEN?
2: Sure. Uh, so we, a number of years ago, developed a system that would be able to take the water on the space station and generate fluids that can be used intravenously in case an astronaut were sick or injured. Is that what the
0: IB gen you mentioned the is? IV, is yes. I, IV, 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 IV generation? Yes. Generation, okay. Like Go you ahead. have
1: an IV in a hospital? Yeah,
0: gotcha. Go ahead, Chris, continue. That type of system
2: would allow future astronauts to develop and use IV fluid at the time that they need it. Right now what we have to do is we fly bags of IV fluid to the space station. Those bags all have expiry dates on them. So if we don't use them, that was mass and volume that could have been used in some other better way.
0: Yeah. That trade-off you referred to a few minutes ago.
2: Exactly. So an integrated system in the future has an environmental control and life support system that's already providing water to the astronauts to drink. We want to take that same water, transform it into IV fluids and be able to use it in case someone gets sick or injured that's the kind of system integration and technology development that we hope to continue to do on the space station to prepare
0: for mars not to go too far off but how do you transfer transform regular water into iv solutions what do you do something you have to add to it
2: you sterilize the water and then you add certain solutes to that water to make it essentially you're adding salt to the water Uh and the technology that is developed there is one that has applications for spaceflight, but also has applications on the ground.
0: And, and put, I guess similar to the way they do it on the ground, except that they, on, as you can see, I'm pointing up to the station, they don't have the benefit of gravity to help mix those components, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. The next step in testing, he, he thinks, is gonna be when the Artemis program puts astronauts on the moon, which is further away than the space station, but not nearly as far away as Mars is. Is is that the next step in this process that Nancy should Absolutely, get her eyes it is all lit up? Yes, <laughs> we want that.
1: It is. Um, you know, the purpose of Artemis is not just um, uh, the boots on the moon, but it's also to um, uh, have a moon base and uh, explore more on that moon, on the moon, and see what you can get, um, what the moon can provide to us. Um, If there is a moon base, once that is there, that is, that will become the best analog. It will supersede ISS as an analog for Mars, and it is a stepping stone to Mars. And the reason for that is is, um, you will be there long long duration, and as Chris mentioned earlier, um, the galactic cosmic radiation, uh, is more similar um, on the moon to what you will experience going forward on
0: Mars but not s- as similar to what they had get on the space on ISS
1: station. because the ISS is still within the um, atmosphere the uh, protection
0: the moon also has some gravity that the space station doesn't have
1: absolutely
0: and, and, and Mars has gravity although they're not the same as each other right correct mm-hmm. so
2: we refer to that in most cases, as partial gravity. Okay. And so if Earth is 1G and the space station is 0G, then the moon is about 1 G and Mars is about 1 And so the partial gravity environment of the moon is something that is very important for us to become more familiar with and to study in depth. We know that the human body changes significantly on the space station because of the lack of gravity. What we don't know is whether or not what amount of gravity the human body needs in order to function in a way that's most similar to Earth. And it may be that the gravity on the moon is actually sufficient for us to be able to function more like we do on the ground on Earth. Uh, than we do on the space station. And so being able to study people for long durations on
0: the moon is going to give us invaluable data longer than just the couple of days that they were there in the sure. Apollo program. Mm-hmm. Um, what other things are you thinking that you can do at a at a sustainable moon base that uh, that you need to do for, for, for the uh, for future to Mars missions?
1: So one of the key things uh, that we've been studying is is how medications change in space in a zero G environment and uh, in a a radiation environment.
0: You mean like become less potent Uh, over time? Yeah,
1: maybe become less potent and uh, if they become toxic. Uh, yeah. So we're very concerned Might about look. that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so um, we're actually working with the FDA um, on on uh, to gather data associated with that. And then we fly medications to the space station um, and bring them back and study them as well. We'd like to do that on the moon because of the different environment um, and because it is more analogous to heading to Mars for us to find out Um, which medications can be safe and effective for that longer duration trip to mars
0: i know that because i did stories on it a long time ago that on the space station they were uh, touting what was called a telemedicine capability Uh, the ability with two-way video for uh, doctors on the ground for flight surgeons here in houston to talk to and to see the astronauts on the station back and forth and to diagnose them and that sort of thing is even used on the on the planet for for people in, in remote locations too. Is that not something that you could employ for crews going to Mars? It is, but it's going to look
2: different. Is but. but <laughs> the, the communication challenges we're going to have going to Mars are significant. So because we are stuck with the speed of light as it is. Uh, (laughs) We can't get information back from Mars faster than 10 minutes, which means that back and forth communications between here and Mars will take 20 minutes. And so trying to have a conversation or more, Mm -hmm. trying to have a conversation with somebody where you're waiting 20 minutes for their response is a very boring conversation.
0: And let's, let's be really blunt about this to everybody. The reason for that is because Mars is so Far away, absolutely. If if you consider the ISS and the Moon and Mars,
2: the Moon is about a thousand times further away from Earth than the ISS, and Mars is about a thousand times further away from the Moon. So, the distances are immense that these communications have to transit. And one of the challenges that we're going to have, even beyond the delay in the communications for Mars, is that during a mission to Mars, there's going to be a period of time where the sun is in between Mars and the earth. And the sun is gonna prevent all communications from going back and forth. So there's gonna be a period of time where we are gonna have people on the surface of Mars, probably about a week and a half to two weeks where we can't see or talk to them at all. At all, wow. Hmm. So the ability to provide telemedicine or remote medicine support is something that is very useful but is limited by communications. So one of our jobs at XMC is to start trying to develop ways for our crews, our astronauts, to become more Earth-independent, so that they can do their job and take care of themselves
0: if we can't help them. Sounds like they're going to have to do that for everything, not just their their medical care. But but yeah, um, how do you do that? Do you just do you send crews who are made up entirely of doctors? Uh, as a doctor, uh, that sounds fine I, I know you're in. Li- I
2: know you're in line. But that, I
0: mean, do, do they have to be medical professionals, or, or is the training that they can get over the course of getting ready going to be sufficient to, to let engineers and scientists go, too? In order to accomplish the mission, we have to send more than doctors.
2: That's for certain. Uh, right now, NASA intends to send a doctor on a mission to Mars. Um, but there's always a chance that that doctor is the one who becomes sick or injured. So you have to have a more robust capability Mm -hmm. than that. So what we need to do is we need to find ways to not only train and prepare people on the ground to deal with medical emergencies and and maintain health and performance. We need to give them all the tools that they need in mission to try and help themselves. And so that includes different things like uh, procedure support. So we are developing a module right now, software module, that we're going to fly to the space station in the spring. And what that module is going to do is it's going to guide astronauts to perform their own ultrasounds on each other without talking to the ground and without medical training. So we're looking at trying to develop all of the tools they're going to need to take care of themselves Mm -hmm. um, that will augment whatever their training and preparation was on the ground before they left.
0: That as you think about the fact that they're going to be gone so far away which also means they're going to be gone for such a long period of time um, and they're going to have to learn how to be more self-sufficient entirely self-sufficient because Houston earth can't talk to them that you, you really have to have them fully prepared to as if it were going to be a one-way trip they've got to be able to take care of themselves they have
1: to be able to take care of themselves absolutely they they do and so um, again one of our approaches is in enabling them to take care of themselves with a training module so that they can do refresher training or just-in-time training Um, and software will uh, lend itself um, very well to that just like uh, with our ultrasound um, technology that we're developing for them right now but we are. They, they will have to become self-sufficient. They're going to become uh, more uh, like explorers um, that we think of uh, from the past, like mm-hmm. uh, Shackleton or those types of folks who, who really did go exploring and um, were in hostile environments, and they had to depend on themselves for um, their health and maintenance and survival. And, th- and we, we are expecting them to thrive, not just survive.
0: Sure, sure. Now, we referenced this before and I wanted to to, to get back to it. You, you talk about the planning that you're doing and the trade-offs that you're trying to work out about what things that you they you can bring you need to bring are most important to bring are vital or just luxuries uh, what, what what kind of variables do you guys have to weigh in this equation to figure out, uh, to figure out what fits there. I mean, one thing I, I realize is the size of the spacecraft, and you're not building the spacecraft, but they're saying, here, here's here's the size of the closet you, that you get to fill up. What do you have to, uh, g- give me a sense of the discussions that you all have and, and the the variables that you look at in trying to determine what goes and what can't.
2: You're absolutely right that when most people talk about the constraints, we talk about the mass and the volume and the power that each individual device or piece of technology is going to have. But the other things that are less talked about but equally important one is data. How are we going to manage the flow of all of this information back and forth? If it requires huge amounts of data to be transmitted to earth for people on the ground to interpret and then send back to the astronauts what to do with that information maybe that's not the best solution Uh, the other thing that we are also looking at are the what are going to be the knowledge skills and abilities of the crew if we send a piece of equipment that is designed to be used by a highly experienced physician and that person is the person who is sick or injured. And, and not capable of doing it. And not capable of doing it. How are the other crew members going to be able to use that equipment? And so we don't want to send something on a mission to Mars that people are not going to be able to use effectively because that, again, is, is a wasted resource. So we have to weigh the mass, power, and volume, which are the typical things we talk about on spacecraft, but the data and the knowledge and the training are equally important Mm
1: -hmm. and the way that we're doing that is we're building a tool a model as you know uh, a lot of science relies on models to um, calculate and predict or uh, capture trends and patterns and uh, weigh uh, probabilities and so one of the key Uh, um, areas of focus that we are doing is building a model that can run all of these complex computations to make the trades even with inputs. So we can give it um, uh, a mass constraint or a power constraint or a volume constraint or a data constraint and we can have it run through a variety of uh, algorithms, and uh, it will help us define what our options are for an optimi- optimized medical system. Mm-hmm. So we're using math to do that.
0: Yeah, it's a good thing you have some mathematicians <laughs> that, that are available. But uh, what are the what are the variables you, that you're considering that that you're building into these algorithms? What 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 are you trying to protect against or or ensure?
2: That's one of the hardest challenges that we have, is trying to predict what's going to occur. And so the best way that we do that is not only using previous spaceflight data. So the last 20 years of people on the ISS has given us lots of great information about what kinds of conditions may occur. But we're also trying to use other information that we can get on the ground from from analogs, from similar situations. So we look at how people provide medical care in remote locations like Antarctica. Uh, What happens on a submarine that can't surface and is under the water for weeks at a time, how do they provide medical care? There are also analog populations on the ground of people who are similar to astronauts and we can study what happens to them over time and use that information to extrapolate what's going to happen to our astronauts. So we're trying to take all of that data and incorporate it into our models and perform our risk analysis to come up with a list of the most likely conditions that are going to occur. And we use that list to help define what our medical system is gonna be able to, to provide
0: care for. Hmm. I, I would assume that you're trying to design a system that could provide whatever medical care they need.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: we're not we're not drawing a line that says we'll 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 be able to take care of you up to this point and if you get something worse too bad
2: one of the challenges we have is that at the end of the day we are going to be constrained in what we can take and we're going to have to make some hard decisions but we want our astronauts to be able to use parts of our system in flexible ways we want them to improvise and be prepared for the unexpected because one of the things we have learned on the space station is that things occur that we were not predicting. Yeah. And the more time we have people spending in space and the more people who go to space, the more data we get to tell us about that. Right. And a great example is a recent paper just came out that was published that talks about an astronaut who had a blood clot. No one was anticipating blood clots in astronauts. Mm-hmm. We did not have a capability to treat that problem within our models. So, the more time we spend in space, the more people we send to space, the better the data is that we can use to make our predictions going forward.
0: I'm aware that human research program is involved with running a lot of different analogs, uh, not just natural analogs like Antarctica, but ones that have been built here to try to gather some data. Have they been, been fruitful for you?
2: Those analogs, One of the great things that we can study in those environments is how different people work together. And one of the things we know for an exploration crew like the astronauts going to Mars is that they are going to have to be a highly effective team. And if a medical emergency is going to occur, how are the people in that environment going to respond to that emergency? How are they going to know what to do, what procedures to follow, and how are they going to execute? on that training that they've had to take care of their sick or injured crew member. Because those folks, they train for years together. They become like family to each other. So if you can imagine what it'd be like trying to provide medical care to someone in your family if they have a medical event, and you do it in a really difficult environment, we need to know how they're gonna respond. And so using these analogs on the ground to study how people respond in these kinds of circumstances Are going to help us to develop better procedures that the astronauts going to mars can use
0: i I think it's important to point out too that nasa is not doing all this work on its own you guys are involved with a lot of people outside the gates here and trying to to build this up tell me about that
1: uh sure we have um agreements with other federal agencies as I mentioned earlier we're working with a federal drug administration uh, to help us with our pharmaceutical um, studies uh, we have been uh, we've asked the Mayo Clinic for we're working with the Mayo Clinic to gather um, uh, incidence rates for uh, conditions uh, we also work with the international partners we have agreements um, with uh, Canadian Space Agency and HRP as a whole works with um, Uh, the European Space Agency we're working with them on a technology demonstration coming up soon uh, in the next year um, for a medical device as well and so um, as with anything the more uh, diverse minds and capabilities you bring to solve a problem the greater um, outcome you get of that solution and so we have partnerships um, in fact our teams of science Scientists and clinicians and engineers are stationed all over the United States. We have virtual teams that uh, are part of our element.
0: They're not all just working in here. They're not
1: here. They're not all here at Johnson Space Center. They're at other space centers and they're at just uh, remote locations.
0: As you do this work, try to figure out what is needed, what sort of communications are you still having with the people who are building the spaceships? in order to make sure that plans that, you know, I, I have a genius plan, but it won't work on this vehicle. I mean, you don't want to get in that into that position. So how do you still work with the uh, the, the spaceship builders? We have a, a team that w- works within our
2: element that is focused on systems engineering. And what you're describing is exactly that. What we are trying to do is develop the, the information that Vehicle designers and mission planners are going to need early on in their plans so they can incorporate a crew health and performance system into their spaceships, essentially. And so the model you described earlier where someone says, here's the closet, you can fill the closet with whatever you want. We are actually trying to change that paradigm to one where a crew health and performance system is integrated into the spacecraft like every other system is. So... If the spacecraft provides oxygen to the crew members, which it hopefully does, it does. in order for them to live, then, <laughs> as I understand, why, it. as a, as a, on the medical side, should I have to have separate oxygen for medical purposes? If the vehicle already does that, I need to leverage that capability from the vehicle, and all I need to do is provide an interface between the vehicle and the patient. So. The integration and the systems engineering functions that our group is doing is trying to influence these programs early on in their development so that we can have those systems, that crew health and performance system, as part of the spacecraft.
1: And one of the ways that we do that, our systems engineering team is using model based systems engineering. And in fact, our um, systems engineering team is working as part of an agency initiative, um, headquarters initiative that is trying to infuse model-based systems engineering in all of the future programs. And so we are working uh, at the forefront of the agency towards that goal. Our team has created, um, has a model and has created requirements, concepts of operations, functional decomposition of those requirements, so that when any, a program like Artemis comes online, yeah. that they have something to start from for the requirements to build their spacecraft.
0: In general, if, if it can be said, when you think about crews on two year long, three year long missions, are you thinking that they are more likely to? get a cold or uh, you know have an old back injury flare up as opposed to break an arm or or, or something is, is there a, a certain kind of thing that you that you've de- you've you've come to believe is more likely to happen
2: as i said before the the biggest challenge is probably trying to predict the unpredictable well but we also know as as i said before that these are all normal people, and we try to send up as healthy a people as we can. But at the end of the day, they have a lot of the same problems that we have. They have backaches and headaches and rashes. and We have to be able to manage those kind of more minor problems to prevent them from becoming more serious problems. The other kinds of issues that they are, that they could have, that we people have on the ground, we try to prevent or screen out before we send them. So we ideally don't want to send someone to space that's going to have a heart attack or a stroke. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, because we can't predict everything that's going to occur, we need to have a, a list of capabilities that we can take with us that are going to manage a wide variety of conditions. So our goal ultimately is to develop that list of conditions and capabilities so we can design the system necessary to treat them. History has shown us that lots of different things can occur. Apollo 13 is a great example of someone who became sick and was completely unpredicted from happening. Right. And it turns out that even when that person did become sick, we didn't have the capability on board to effectively treat them. So it was a good thing they were already on their way home again. We don't want that to happen
0: on the way to Mars. Right, and, and, but it's, you know, it certainly could, and, and you're trying to come up with a way to, that those people can take care of themselves, because once they take off from Mars, they can't turn around and come back for years, literally years. Um, in an earlier podcast segment, Jennifer Fogarty, your boss, uh, talked about not only developing things that people will need, but also a decision support culture and that strikes me as being really important you're sending some people out there on their own to take care of themselves and this is a way that we can help them after they're gone
1: that is true Um, and for XMC we have just started our decision support um, research Uh, we want to ensure that the crews have the capability to uh, be able to rely on um, the information from the ground and the technologies that can help them decide uh, between two illnesses or help them decide which pieces of equipment are the best things to use to solve this uh, to help with this illness or this injury and so we have kicked off um, research to develop decision support that is a key component to having crews being able to take care of themselves on their way to Mars
0: And it struck me, too, that it's a way to give them some confidence that what they're doing is the right thing to do. Yes. As they take care of themselves. Um, This is fascinating, and I, I wish you luck as you continue to do it. Nancy Fleming and Chris Lanehart, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to space. If you're like me and you watch some science fiction movies and television and you can come away thinking that most of the problems of human spaceflight are pretty easy to solve once you get better shielding technology and artificial gravity locked in and then I think we'll find that a lot of the medical questions will pretty much solve themselves. But until then, hearing Nancy Fleming and Chris Lanehart talk about working through the real problems facing humans trying to live out from under the safety of our atmosphere is terrifically interesting. And please don't forget that we have three more episodes coming up on the remaining elements of NASA's Human Research Program. You can find out more about all the elements by going online to nasa.gov hrp. I will also remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at all of the NASA JSC accounts. When you go to those places, use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Please indicate that it's for Houston. We have a podcast. You can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov slash podcasts and scrolling through to our name. You can also find all of the other exciting NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov podcasts. Very convenient. This episode was recorded on December 11th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Beth Weisinger, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, and Belinda Polito for their help with the production, to Emily Molden, Brett Redden, and the HRP team, and to our guests, Nancy Fleming and Chris Lanehart for a great conversation. We'll be back next week.